Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be with, uh, with you this morning. My name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. And I am excited to worship with you today and learn with you today from God's word and God's spirit and what he has for us. I'm doing better than first service so far. First service, I completely missed my cue. I was backstage somewhere and they were just waiting on me. It was all planned. It was part of Advent, the whole waiting thing. So I'm, I'm out here on my cue today. I'm doing well. I hope you're doing great this morning. I'm excited to be with you. We are in uh, an Advent series, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, historically are known as Advent, and they are symbolic for waiting. We are waiting on Christmas where we celebrate Jesus who came and his birth. But Advent is symbolic for the waiting period in the Old Testament, waiting on the Messiah, the chosen one, to come. And uh, Charlie has kicked this series off for the first two weeks. He taught on hope, and then last week he taught on peace. Next week, Jim will wrap it up with joy. But they've asked me to teach today, and, and they asked me to teach on love the third week of Advent. And I said, yes, I was really excited. I love being in here with you guys. But I kind of had to laugh because it's ironic. The last time they asked me to teach in here was in August. And that time they asked me to teach on love. And so they're pigeonholing me. They're, they're typecasting me, man. They're, they're limiting me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the last time I spoke in August, it was on love in terms of God's people. How we should love one another. Based out of John 13, the, the mark of a disciple is love for one another. Today, I want to focus on love through a different lens and focus on the love of the Father, the love that God has, the love of, that God has displayed, the love that God has revealed throughout history and throughout his word and his spirit. So the love of God. Speaking of love, let me just ask this question. Uh, where's my married people at in the room? Any married people in the room? Yes, some hands went up quickly. Others are like, I don't know what he's about to do, but they went up anyways. Good job, married people. Yes, I, I am in that club, married eight years this year. Beautiful bride, three kids, loving the life. All right, uh, now where's my dating people? Oh, yeah, someone is really blessed. The rest, see, you, you guys are hesitant with the dating. First service was too. I was like, hey, where's my married people? First service was like, yeah, me. And then I was like, where's my dating people? They were like, oh gosh, what's about to happen here? Dating people, okay, a little shy. One really enthusiastic person. I, I hope your relationship it's going really well, sounds like it is. And then, uh, listen, I haven't forgotten about you. Where's my single people at? Yes, okay, hands high. Listen, this is your time. You might wanna put them up high and leave them up high. Take a look around. <laughs> I'm giving you an opportunity. Do a little wave if you can, okay? All my single ladies, all right? <clears throat> Some of you guys are like, ooh, section four, row two. Yes. Well, even if you're single now, you've probably been in a relationship at some point long enough to experience what happens in relationships, whether you're married or dating or engaged or whatever. If you're in any kind of romantic relationship, you have probably experienced what I will call the invisible wall between you and the other person. Some of you guys maybe already know what I mean by that, and I haven't even explained it yet. But the invisible wall, all right? You guys know what I'm saying? You are sitting there with your spouse, your significant other, your boo, your bae, your boyfriend, whatever, you're chilling. And all of a sudden, for no reason at all, it just seems off. And you, you don't know why. It's not like you guys got in a fight. You didn't argue. You didn't spark this. Like, but all of a sudden, it just feels like the air is sucked out of the room and you just feel off. You feel distant with that person. 
Anybody ever experienced this? One person, okay, great, me too. I will confess in my years of marriage, this, is, this has happened before, it happens. You guys are making me feel like I'm the only one. This cannot be isolated to my marriage. Has anyone ever experienced this? Thank you, okay. I know you guys have. You guys, I, we're in church, I don't know. He asked me if I was single. I'm not interacting with this guy anymore. It happens, the invisible wall. For no reason at all, you just feel distant. And so you know, guys, what do you do? You, you, you inquire, you ask a question. Hey, are we, are we okay? My wife is typically caught off guard by this. Yes, of course, what are you talking about? Okay, well, I, it, just seems, <laughs> it just seems distant. I don't know, I just wanted to ask, are, are, we, are we cool, are we okay? It just seemed a little different. Yes, we're, we're good. Okay, because it just seemed a little weird. No, we're good, okay. It just seemed distant. No, we're fine. Okay, it's like, all right, the more I ask, the worse it gets. You guys would just be chilling, playing Scrabble or something. You put platypus down, triple word score, and it just seems off all of a sudden. It's like, oh, was I supposed to let her win? I don't know. The distance, the invisible wall. For whatever reason, for no reason, it just seems far. It just seems distant. You guys have experienced this in your relationships. Has anyone ever experienced this with God before? Thank you. Yes, show of hands. I have. It's okay to admit this. It's okay. I have. I'd be willing to bet you have, even if you didn't throw a hand up, to where in your relationship with God, for no reason at all, or at least a reason not known to you, it's not like you're in some moral failure. It's not like you're willfully and habitually sinning or, or something of, of, of that nature. But for no reason that you can put a finger on, all of a sudden you feel distant with God. In fact, over the course of years that I've been in ministry, this is one of the most reoccurring conversations I have with people. So that's why I'm willing to bet you've probably, probably been there too. People will tell me and confess, Matt, I, I read my Bible. I just don't feel like I'm getting anything from it. I pray, but I don't feel like he's listening. I go to church, but I don't feel intimacy. It feels routine. I try to join a small group, but I don't feel like I'm connecting. I just don't feel God. He feels distant. Why is that? What is that? And does the Bible have anything to say about that? Do you feel distant from God this morning? And do you feel distant from his love this morning? Is it hard for you to feel the love of God? Is it hard for you to embrace the love of God? Is it hard for you to understand the love of God if that weird gap of distance is existing between you and him? What does the Bible have to say about God's love and his presence with us. I wanna do something this morning. I wanna look at two different passages. The first is the birth story of Jesus found in Matthew chapter one. We are right around Christmas. After all, we're in an Advent series. I wanna look at this birth story, this Christmas-oriented story of Jesus, Matthew chapter one. And then from there, I wanna to go to a different passage of scripture where Jesus is teaching. And at first, it may seem like an odd pairing. At first, you may be thinking, how did he get here from Matthew chapter one? What do these two passages have in common? But if you'll bear with me this morning, I think these passages are strongly linked. I think Jesus is tying a thread, a theme through them both that we will see. Matthew chapter one, I'm gonna start in verse 18, give you a little bit of context. There's a young 
girl named Mary. She is a teenage girl. She's betrothed to a young man named Joseph. You're probably very familiar with this story. For years and centuries and millennia, the Old Testament has talked about this one who is coming, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who will come. And finally, this moment in history is taking place where God chooses Mary to be the one to carry the chosen one, the Messiah. But there's a problem. Mary goes to her betrothed, Joseph, and tells him, listen, I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin. And this is God's child. I'm the carrier of the Messiah. I have not been unfaithful to you. I've not cheated on you. I've not stuck around. I've, I've been true to you, but I am pregnant. And Joseph, and understandably so, is like confused and panicked and freaked out and doesn't quite understand what she's talking about. And we can kind of throw him a bone in this, right? Like, hey, I'd probably be confused too. I'll confess to you guys, my wife has told me that she's been pregnant with my child and I've been confused about how that has happened. So I can understand Joseph's plight when someone who he's never been intimate with and who's claiming to be a virgin comes to him and says, no, I'm pregnant, but I haven't been unfaithful to you. And so he wrestles with this and he decides to divorce Mary. He's not buying into this whole, I've got a child and it's God's story. He considered these things. He didn't want to put her to shame and he resolved to do it quietly. He didn't want to publicly expose her. He still cared for her and loved her. But as he considered these things, verse 20, Matthew chapter one, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Like what she's telling you is true. This is God's child. She is the carrier of the chosen one, the Messiah. The prophecies have pointed to this moment. All of this is true. She hasn't been unfaithful to you. This is God's son that she carries. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. For the past two weeks, Charlie has been teaching out of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah's prophecies are 700 years old at this point. Isaiah was pointing ahead to this one who is coming. A child will come. He will be the prince of peace, a counselor. The government will be on his shoulders. All these beautiful prophecies we know about Jesus. This is another one. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. You'll name him Emmanuel, which in the Hebrew means God with us. God with us. The angel is comforting Joseph and giving him clarity by telling him, no, it's all true. The Messiah is in Mary's womb and she is carrying the chosen one. This is God in the flesh. This is God with us. The entire Bible has been building up to this moment. The Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is pointing ahead to him who is coming and everything in the New Testament points back to he who came. This is the hinge of scriptures and history. It's all culminating in this way. God could have taken any form and chosen to enter it into our world in any way. And God decided to do it in the most vulnerable and fragile way possible. I will take the form of an infant and be raised by teenage parents and submit myself to them. 
God is with us. This is not some hallmark mantra, very lighthearted, like, hey, God is for you and with you. He supports you, which he does, and those things are true. The name of Jesus is not just a name. It is a declaration which the entire Bible has been pointing towards that God has left his heavenly realm and come to be with us. Us. He has stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He has left his throne and taken a manger. Divine spirit has put on flesh and blood. Divine has become man. Paul says it like this in the book of Philippians. Jesus, who was in the form of God, took on the form of man and became a servant, humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God in the flesh the book of John says in his opening statements. This is a theme throughout all of scripture that God desires to be with his people. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He met Moses on top of the mountain and gave him law to live by. He lived and camped with the Hebrew people in the wilderness so that they could worship him. He sent messages to the prophets. He inspired music through the psalmists. He gave wisdom to the authors of the Old Testament. He dwelt with the Israelites in the temple when their religion was structured and they worshiped him there. And now he has put on flesh and lives among his people. All throughout history, the presence of God was near to his people, but only in the form of his spiritual presence. But now for the first time in history, God has taken physical form to live with his people. He has left heaven and put on flesh and lives among us. The name of Jesus is not just a name, it's a declaration that God is finally with us. These centuries of waiting, the 700 years of Isaiah's prophecies, God is now with us, so close that you could touch him and hold him and be with him. Do you feel distant from God this morning? Are you struggling to feel his intimacy and his presence, his love this morning? God is with us. It's a statement, it's a declaration in the scriptures, it's underlined time and time again that God is with us. He has pursued his people, he has given us himself, he is with us. Well-known verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. The love of God is revealed through the presence of God. God is with us and therefore his love is with us. His name is Emmanuel. Does Jesus ever teach on this? Now he certainly models it. He modeled it through his life, through his ministry, walking among us, creating friendships and community, teaching, living. But does he ever teach on this concept that God's presence is with us, that God is a pursuer and a chaser of his people? And this is where I want to go to this secondary passage, Luke chapter 15. And if you're familiar with Luke 15, it may be confusing. Why would we go there? Luke 15 is one of the most famous chapters, I think, in the Gospels, 
maybe all of scripture. It's taught on often because it contains the parable of the prodigal son, which we're going to look at this morning. And Luke 15 is so robust and I believe so profound. It has been such a, an impactful uh, passage and chapter in my own spiritual life as I've thought about and, and began to understand who God is. I, I think you could easily have an eight to 10 week sermon series just on Luke 15 alone. It is so rich. We won't do that this morning. But I do wanna look into the text and I wanna highlight three distinct things that I think Jesus is teaching us about the love of God. About the love of God. Three things I think Jesus is teaching us about the love of God from Luke 15. So let's look at the first two verses. Luke 15, verses one and two, Luke introduces to us kind of three categories of characters within these two verses. Begins this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he even eats with them. Luke gives us three characters in, this, in these two verses. The first group of characters are the tax collectors and the sinners. Tax collectors and sinners would have been categories of people that culturally no one liked or no one wanted to be around. They were far from God. They were what culture would say were bad people. Not much has changed in the 2,000 years in terms of how we view tax collectors. We don't like them today either, right? They were really despised in Jesus' culture because Rome, an oppressive government of the day, needing to collect taxes from the people, but not wanting to employ Romans to collect taxes from the Jews whom they've overtaken, decided to hire Jews to collect taxes from Jews on behalf of Caesar and the Roman government. And so tax collectors were Jews taking money from fellow Jews on behalf of Rome. They were despised. And then sinners, this other word is just this broad stroke, all-encompassing word. Anybody who's morally failing, anybody who's morally breaking the laws of God, anybody who is far from God and committing sin, Luke gives us this category of people, those who are far from God. They are drawing near to Jesus. Interesting. And then in, in verse two, we have the, the third category. We have those far from God. We have God in the flesh, Jesus. And now we have the third category, the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the religious people of the day. They were the ones who knew the word of God, who have memorized the word of God. They've even written some laws that they've added to the word of God. They live in, in such a way that they claim righteousness. They claim being close to God. They claim knowing God and his ways. In fact, they, they would claim that we are with God. We are with God. And Jesus is God with us. But they don't get that. Their claim is because of our knowledge and because of everything we've studied and learned and because of our lifestyles and because of the bar that we set, even though we can't meet it ourselves, we are with God. And they get very upset that Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us, they completely miss that part, is hanging out with people who are far from God. In fact, they grumble against him and they say, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. Why, why, this, why this additional tag? He doesn't just receive sinners, he eats with them. What's the significant about eating with them? Why were they so upset about this? 
Because in, in Hebraic culture 2,000 years ago, to sit and to break bread with someone was a sign of friendship. It wasn't just like, hey, we, we just met, let's go grab a bite and get to know each other. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of intimacy. It was a show of hospitality. And so really what they're saying about Jesus is, this man sits with sinners and he treats them like friends. The audacity of this man, if, if he were really a teacher of God's word, if he were really a prophet, if he were really holy, he would know that what he's doing is so wrong because we're with God. We know God's heart. You don't do this. And Jesus is God with us and treats those who are far from God like friends. They get angry with Jesus because of his behavior. Jesus, I love Jesus, he doesn't fit into a box, he doesn't tuck into social norms or categories, he's so different. Instead of defending himself or instead of launching into some theological discourse with the theologians of the day, he simply tells them three stories. Luke chapter 15 is three stories. The first story can be summed up like this. There was a shepherd who has a flock of sheep and he loses one of those sheep and then he goes after it, he goes to find it. First story, a shepherd loses his sheep and he goes after it, goes to find it. When he's finished telling that story, he tells a second story. The second story is, a, is about a woman who had a coin collection, very sentimental to her, very valuable to her. She loses a coin. She has 10 coins, she loses one, and she finds it. She flips her whole house upside down, she turns over everything, looks under every surface, and finds it. And then he tells this third story. He shifts the conversation about morals, uh, morality, sinners, who's righteous, who's sinful, how could you be with them? He shifts that into a conversation about family. The third, the third story he begins to tell is, there was a father who had a son and he lost his son, and no one goes looking. Now, it's very subtle. Typically, when we look at Luke 15, we focus on the prodigal son, the famous parable that Jesus teaches in his gospels. But when you look at Luke 15 as a whole, and you look at the flow of what Jesus is doing, you begin to pick up on this very subtle thing. Three stories. A shepherd had a sheep. He lost the sheep. He went and found the sheep. A woman had a coin collection, she lost a coin, she goes and finds the coin. A father has a son, he loses the son, and no one goes looking for the son. It's very intentional. Jesus is not doing this accidentally. He's, he's telling stories about something being lost is found. Someone intentionally goes after them. And now he tells a story about a family and a father who has two sons, and when one son is lost, nobody goes looking. He does this very intentionally. Why? Why doesn't anyone go after the son who's lost? What is Jesus trying to communicate through this? Well, let's dig into the prodigal son parable. And in these passages, I would like to extract three principles of the love of God this morning. Do you feel distant from God? Do you feel distant from his love? Jesus begins... Chapter 15, verse 11, Gospel of Luke. Jesus begins this story. In this story, there's a younger son, and he represents those who are far from God. Think back to Luke 15, 1 and 2, the characters. 
The younger son represents those who are far from God. The father in this parable represents God the Father, our heavenly Father. And there's an older brother who represents the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the day. Jesus begins to tell this story. Verse 11, he says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Give me my inheritance. And so the father divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So let's pause there. This, this first little passage, Jesus is kind of giving us a picture of what we, would, what we would define as like a classical sinner, a classical scenario of someone who is far from God and tries to figure out life on their own, who runs from God, who rebels against his ways, who rejects the Father in heaven and tries to figure it all out on their own, discovering time and time again that our decisions are far worse than what God would have had planned for us and comes to the end of themselves Jesus describes this man in a field caretaking pigs and is so hungry, he is craving the slop that the pigs are eating. He's blown all his inheritance on reckless living. He's got nothing left. He is at rock bottom. This is kind of the classical way that we think about those who are far from God. Jesus gives us this picture. When the younger son comes to his dad, he says, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Your Bibles may say, Give me the share of wealth that's coming to me. The Greek word there is bios, and it's really more accurately understood as life. What the son is asking the father to do here is not just give him money. What the son is asking the father to do here is tear apart your life for me. Because in this day and time, 2,000 years ago, M Middle Eastern wealth was associated with land and it was associated with livestock. And this father was very wealthy. And in order to give the son the inheritance, he would have had to sell land and livestock. He would have had to diminish his estate. And it would have been at the expense of his reputation. Your standing in the community is, is linked to your wealth and the size of your land and livestock. For the father to sell those things would have been at the expense of his reputation, at the expense of his honor, at the expense of his standing in the community. Also culturally appropriate during this time, if you had two sons, the older son got two-thirds of the inheritance the younger son got one-third of the inheritance. It was just a cultural understanding. The older brother always got two-thirds. Sorry, younger siblings in the room, I am one. We would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. And so the son is literally asking his dad, I want you to tear apart your life. You are standing in the community. I want you to rip it apart. I'm not worried about your dignity, your honor, the, your reputation how people view you. I want you to tear all those things apart and give me one third of everything that you own. And by the way, an inheritance, traditionally, we even hold this today, is not given until someone is deceased. That's when you receive an inheritance. What the younger son is telling to his dad in this parable is, dad, I wish you were dead. 
fathers in the room, can you imagine this conversation going down? For your child to speak to you in this way, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't care about your life, your reputation, your standing, your honor, your dignity. All that can tear apart as far as I'm concerned. Just give me the money that would be mine if you were dead. It would have been shocking to the listeners of Jesus's day because that culture was so family oriented. You don't talk to your father like this. The listeners would have been listening. Oh, how could, he, how could the son talk to his dad? I mean, they would have been shocked. What would have been even more perplexing about the story that Jesus is building here is the way the father responds to the son. Instead of rejecting him, instead of shunning him, instead of cutting him off, the father actually grants the son's request. That would have been unthinkable, unheard of in Jesus's day. The father would do all of that at his own expense. He would take the ridicule and humiliation and shame and disrespect and lose a third of everything at his own expense. He would grant this son's request. Jesus is telling this story Yes, the Father would do that. And so this brings us to the first principle of God's love that I think Jesus is, is showing us through this passage, which is God's love for us, the Father's love for us, is patient. It is patient. So often we get into these head spaces, we begin to think, God can't love me, not anymore, not after what I've done, not after how far I've run, not after the decisions I've made. There are things that I've done that the people who are closest to me don't even know. And if God ever knew those things, there's no way he could love me. I have outrun, I have outsinned the grace of God and his love. We think those ways, we, we think in those terms that somehow God is quick to anger, and in an instant, his love can just be done because of our foolish decisions, and it's not so. The love of God is long-suffering, it is enduring, and it is patient. It is so gentle. God's love permeates our lives when we make the foolish of most foolish of decisions. It permeates our actions when, when we rebel and run against him and squander everything and find ourselves at rock bottom. The love of God is waiting patiently for us. The love of God is patient. Verse 17, this brother comes to himself. He comes to his senses and he says, man, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger. So he hatches a plan. I know what I'll do. I'll rise and I'll go home to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He comes up with this little speech that he rehearses. If I just say this speech and I give it to my father, maybe, just maybe, he'll let me back in. Notice his words. He's not asking to be a son again. He's simply asking to somehow get into the estate. I just want, I just want some bread. Your servants have bread. I, I just want bread. Make me an apprentice to one of them. I know you'll never take me back as a son, but please just let me live on your land again. He has this speech that he's rehearsing. Don't we do this same thing? 
we rebel and we run and we hit rock bottom. We face the consequences of our sins. You can choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequences. You have no control over how it will affect your life. And we, we come to our senses and we realize, what, what have I been doing? I'm running from God. I've made all the wrong decisions. And we decide, I know what I'll have to do. I'll have to form this speech and I'll pray to God in this way and I'll try to earn my way back into God's love and graces. The younger brother here has prepared a speech. If I just say this in the right way, maybe he'll take me back and allow me to live on the estate. We hatch plans too. If I do this, if I come to church enough times, read my Bible enough times, wake up and pray enough times, maybe then I can earn my way back into God's love. And it doesn't work that way. The whole message of the Bible is that we cannot earn our way into God's love, but that God's love has freely come down to us. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, you have this group of people who decide, let's build our way up to heaven through enough work and enough effort we can get to heaven. The message of the Bible is you can't build a high enough tower. You can't stack up enough good deeds and words and please. All that you can do is receive the gift that my kingdom has come down, you don't have to build a kingdom up, that my love has come down, you don't have to earn your way to it. The son comes up with this plan, he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, he launches into this speech that he's been rehearsing, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And mid-speech, the father just cuts it off and interrupts him. And I love that about Jesus' declaration and revealing of what the love of the father is like. He interrupts the son. He's not interested in any speech about earning or effort. He's only interested in his son because he loves him. He interrupts his speech and he says to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. I love that Jesus depicts the love of the Father as someone who is ready to throw a party at a moment's notice when we come back to him. The Father scanning the horizon because his love is patient every day waiting, waiting, waiting for his son, finally sees this silhouette on the horizon and overwhelmed with emotion and overcome with love, he runs towards his son, which again, the listeners of Jesus' day would have been like, what? Because in this culture 2,000 years ago, men did not run. It was shameful for a man to expose his legs in this culture 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is painting a picture of a very wealthy and very respected father who sees his son and sprints towards him, showing his legs. The emphasis doesn't land on us because we don't think in those terms. To these listeners, it would have been, what? He, he shamed himself? And Jesus is communicating this idea the love of God is, is shameless. The, the dignity of his reputation doesn't matter. He loves his son. He saw him and he had to go to him. And overwhelmed with love and compassion, he hugs him and kisses him. And get this, he takes a robe and a ring and sandals and places it upon the son just as he is. He doesn't ask the son to clean up and shower. 
The son smells like pigs and filth and poverty and sin. The son doesn't make him clean up. In this moment, he embraces him where he's at and then takes the image of his riches, a robe and ring and sandal, and places it over the son's filth, covering his sin with the image of his riches. Is this not what the father does for us? You don't have to clean yourself up to come to the Father. You don't have to have some speech rehearsed. Your standing as a child of God is never redefined by your actions and your decisions. You cannot out the love of God, and you can't redefine your identity as his child. Brings us to our second point, the love of God is permanent. It's permanent. God's love does not change just because you might change. God's love does not change because you might run. His love for you is permanent. He takes the image of his riches and righteousness and puts them on us just as we are. Kills the fattened calf, a delicacy by the way. A lot of meals did not include meat. And if they did, it wasn't a fattened calf. This is the most special thing to eat in this day. Now there's a third character. We haven't heard about, heard about him much, but he's there, the older brother, verse 25. This older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, your brother's home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry. Remember, the older brother represents the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, angry that the father would have love on those far from him, angry and refused to go into the party. His father came out and entreated him and begged him, but he answered his father very disrespectfully, didn't call him father, he says, look, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you have never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came home who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Uh, you can understand some of his anger. He's got a very strong sense of fairness, of justice. I've been faithful to you, dad. I haven't even gotten a goat, but you killed the calf for him? Father says, son, you're always with me. Notice the father still calls him son. Your identity as his child does not change because of a wicked heart. You're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And Jesus right then and there ends the story. It's a cliffhanger. We don't know what's gonna happen. Does the older brother decide to go in and party? Can he get over his anger? Will he make restitution with the younger brother? Does he go and he celebrate? Does he soften his heart and understand the love of the Father? We don't know, and Jesus does this very intentionally because the Pharisees, the religious elite, the older brother who are more concerned with uh, doing their chores and obeying God, the older brother's just as guilty. He's just as far from the father, except it's not rebellion, it's do-goodism. If I do enough good things, that'll earn my father's love. They're both far from the father. 
But the Pharisees are the ones upset with Jesus because he's spending time with people who are far from God. So Jesus tells this parable and ends it on a cliffhanger to kind of give it back to them. What will you do? Will you celebrate with us? Will you come and sit down and eat with us? Will you rejoice that they are coming to know God because God is with us? He leaves it on a cliffhanger. We don't know what the older brother does. But what we do know is what Jesus did. And by telling this parable in the way that he told it, Jesus is very cleverly and very subtly communicating to the Pharisees and to us, I am the good brother who has come to seek after that which is lost. You see, in the story that Jesus tells, it would have been the older brother's responsibility to go after the younger brother. In this culture and in this time, such a family-oriented culture, if one sibling left, it would have been the older sibling's responsibility to go after them and find them, even at their own expense, at their own reputation, at their own dignity. Remember, the younger son has already asked for his inheritance. Everything that's going on now, the party, the fattened calf, the celebration, it's all at the expense of the older brother now because all that's left is his. And he gets so upset about that. But in this culture, a good brother wouldn't have cared. A good brother would have been out looking for his younger brother, not so worried about his chores in the field, but worried about the family. Jesus is saying to us and to the Pharisees, I am the good brother who has come to seek after that which was far from God, that which was lost. The third principle of the love of God is that the love of God is present. The love of God is patient, the love of God is permanent, and the love of God is present. Jesus, our good older brother, has left home, has left his home in heaven at his expense and his dignity and his reputation to come and pursue us. He has stepped into our world to find us and bring us back home. Jesus is the good brother. The presence of God is revealed through the coming of Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel. It's a declaration that brother has come. He's walking the streets. He came to the pig fields. He is looking for his people and finding his siblings to bring them back home to a father who is patiently and permanently waiting in love for his children. Jesus is the ultimate good brother. The love of God is present with us because Jesus stepped out of heaven and became one of us to bring us back home. It's the declaration at his birth. God is with us. Do you feel far from God this morning? Do you feel far from the love of God this morning? May we be reminded of the beautiful truths of God's word in this season of Advent, that God's love is patient and permanent and present because Jesus left home to come find us and bring us back. And even now, he's promised to give us his, his spirit. His presence is still with us. God's love is with you and God's presence is near. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for being the good brother, for leaving 
your home for going after that which was lost. Thank you for stepping into our world and into our filth and into our decisions and being so patient and so kind and so gentle and so gracious. Jesus, you modeled through your life a love that is never ending and a love that is always near. You treated sinners like friends and you call us brother and sister. Thank you for coming to find us when we were running. And even now you still search and seek after that which is lost. Father, thank you for your love and for your spirit who is your presence permanently with us. Father, please encourage us and remind us of these things when we feel discouraged and far from you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.